0: Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Episcopal Church in Vero Beach, Florida. We are glad to have you join us. The Essential 100 Bible Study, also known as E100, is led by Father Christopher Rodriguez. This study is an overview of the Bible that guides you through 50 Old Testament and 50 New Testament stories. Upon completion of the study, you will have received the big picture of God's Word. One of the issues that came up last week, and a few people mentioned it to me at church this past weekend, about, the uh, morality of God ordering, of, of God killing the firstborn sons. Did that come up here? It did, right? Um, does that bother anybody? No? Okay. Um, let me, let me uh, it doesn't bother me, but I'll tell you why. And, and let me explain to you how this works, or how the Bible perceives these things. First of all, one thing you've got to rem- remember is that... Uh, the, um, and you'll see, we'll see this when we go into the book of Joshua. There are times when God orders people to be uh, killed which are apparently, uh, from an outward appearance, uh, innocent. Does that make sense? So like an in, a firstborn son. Now, are any of those firstborn sons um, sinless? No, no. so none of them are really innocent. Do they deserve death? That's another question. But let me just say one thing on a high level, and then I'll dive in a little deeper. Uh, If you remember, if you know your Bible, in the New Testament, God actually sacrifices His firstborn and only son. So it's not as if God does not hold Himself to the same standard. That's the first thing. The second thing is, uh, whenever you say, well, God doing this is unfair, it might be confusing, okay, I'll grant you that. But if you say it's unfair, what you're really saying is that you know better than God does realize that you're you're placing you're placing a moral uh, judgment above God. Does that make sense? You with me? So let me let me say this: If you believe that God is, do we can help can we all agree that God is good? Yes. Is that fair? Okay. If your presumption is that, because Scripture says that God is good, uh, God is just, God is merciful, all these things which are seeming seem to be contradictory, but they're not. But the thing which you have to always remember, if God is good, then whatever he says is good, is good. Is that clear? Okay, so he's the arbiter of morality. So if he says does something like the firstborn sons being, uh, the firstborn everything actually, being killed, uh, it's good. Why is it? Or at least it's moral. Why is it moral? Because God says it's moral. If you don't Start out from that angle, then you're putting something above God, which then becomes God. Does that make sense? At the end of the day, there's a a being, we would call him God, (laughs) who makes moral decisions because he's omniscient, omnipotent, perfectly good, and perfectly holy. It might not make a lot of sense why he does what he does. I'll grant you that. Uh, And it might seem on the surface to be um, unjust or excessive, but... uh, Again, just bear in mind who's God and who isn't. Is that, is that okay, everybody? That might not be a very satisfactory answer, but it actually is, as far as I can tell, the best, the most truthful one. There's another thing, too, which we'll talk about, and we'll get to this later in Joshua, where God says, for example, to Joshua and the battle of Jericho, right? Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, right? And it's a, it's a cute little kitty song. However, what God says is when you go in the Jericho, you are to kill every living thing. Right? Every living thing, parakeets and bunnies and children, everything, it's called the bond. And it means, it means essentially genocide. Right? And not just genocide, it means everything aside. <laughs> how would you say that in, in Latin? Something, how do you say everything aside? And what's the word for it? Anyway, point being, but, but hang up, you'd say, like, well, that's unfair, that's, that's at least excessive. Well, hang on to something. the the salvation of the world, including all the residents of Jericho, right, hinge on something. And it hinges on a very important detail, and that is that the nation of Israel survives and something occurs. That in the history that Jesus Christ is born and dies on the cross for the salvation of all human sin, even the people in Jericho that are killed thousands of years prior. Does that make sense? So the point being that for human, humanity had to have any hope of being saved, this has to happen. Christ must be born and die on the cross to save sins. So the point being, that is the priority. For the, the nation of Israel must be successful, must survive, and must be held together which is why God says you're going to destroy Jericho because those people are so wicked and so evil unless they are removed they'll be an influence on Israel and eventually probably wipe them out does that make sense everybody so if you see from a bigger perspective like for example to come back to the firstborn sons in Egypt right if those firstborn children are saved right and we don't know because it's all that's another whole discussion, but if they're saved, they're saved by the death of Jesus Christ, Christ on the cross, right? For that to occur, the Egyptians have to let the Israelites go. Therefore, for the Egyptians that are killed by, at the Passover, for them to be saved, they've, that the Israelites have to survive. In other words, um, I don't want to say that the means justify the end. Maybe they do, actually, in this case, because for, for every, for the salvation of humanity to occur, Jesus Christ must be born and then die. Is that clear, everybody? That will help, now again, a lot of these are confusing and they're, they're great discussions and great questions to ask. But at the end of the day, you're only left with one of two answers. Either uh, uh, these things are necessary for, the, for Jesus to be born, which is the na- whole purpose of the nation of Israel. Uh, and secondly, if you're putting something else in the place of making those moral judgments, you're making that thing God. Okay. Does that help anybody? That was yeah, well, it's the best I've got so far. I mean, I mean, that's the best I can come up with. Yeah, but thank you. I hope it's helpful. And uh, it might not, it might not lay everything. And, and clearly people that are non-believers, that will make no sense to them, or make little sense to them. So I wouldn't start off a conversation about religion with those topics, because they require some digging and some maturity. Um, but that's um, as good as I've got. So, but today we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about, um, the Exodus, we're going to talk about uh, the, the uh, going through the Red Sea. The Passover was last week. The Jews said, or uh, Moses said, let my people go. And Pharaoh did, right? Why did, he let, why did Pharaoh let them go? Because of all the plagues. And finally he said, all right, I'm, I'm tapping out. Just get out of here and don't come back, okay? But remember, there's a subtext through all of this Story of the plagues and even the Passover. The subtext is this: uh, Who is God? Is Pharaoh God? Is the is the God of is Yahweh God? That's really the subtext of the whole story. So, for example, when uh, when when uh, the Isra- the Egyptians enslave and kill the Israelites, when God run, uh, wipes them off with the Red Sea coming back over the top of them. What's really going on here is both the Egyptians have cried to Pharaoh for help and the Israelites have cried to the God of the Bible for help, who actually helps. Does that make sense? That's the subtext in the story. If you miss that kind of big picture, then the whole thing, is not it'll make sense, but it won't make as much sense as it would otherwise. So the big picture is two battling, two combating worldviews. And I wanna show you something before we go into the section appointed for today. um, I wanna show you a verse, Chapter 13, verse 14. If you look down at your Bible there, um, there is a, uh, when, when the Passover occurred, right, and, and, um, and this is what verse 14 says, and when in time to come, your sons ask you, what does this mean? What are these plagues and this Passover and this Red Sea stuff and all this, what does this mean, Pop? Mom, what does it mean? You shall say to him by a strong hand, The Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. So the point, and the reason I'm telling you that is because what Moses in that little statement there is saying, the purpose of the story is to be reminded that God keeps his word, okay? And he frees his people from slavery, even today, (laughs) okay? So important. These stories are there as a reminder to the Jews when they were wandering in the desert for all, that, all those years, to what, why this occurred, you know? Whenever, you know whenever you have a problem in your, in your life, or a good thing or a bad thing, and you think to yourself, what's going on, right? Why am I going through this? Or the this, this situation's unclear and I want some clarity. Lord, give me some clarity. What I always say to people is, don't forget something impo- important, and that is this. Think back to a point in your life when you were in the same situation. Are you still there? No, of course not. Did God get you out of that? Yeah, you know, he did. Okay, well, guess what? He'll do it again. Is that clear? So verse 14 is reminding you, it's a way of saying, when you're struggling and you're wrestling and you're fearful and you're not sure what's going on, go back and read this story and see how God keeps his word. That's the purpose of the whole story. Okay? So let's start with, um, we're going to go through verses 17 through 22 here. Uh, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, though that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying... God will surely visit you and you shall carry my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the ridge of the wilderness, the desert. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from the people from among the people. Let me stop. Let me just show you one other thing before I dive into the text. Do you see how it talks about the pillar of cloud, the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire was there, and then it's. And then the last verse, the, the the cloud and the pillar were there. It's repetitive. Does it seem? Does it sound kind of clunky to you in English? It does to me. Um, that is a Hebrew device which they would use. It's you sometimes read. You know, Moses and Aaron went up. Moses and Aaron went out for breakfast. To breakfast with Moses and Aaron. That kind of. I'm being simplistic. But that's kind of the way the Old Testament reads sometimes. It's intentional, and it's meant to be a way to remember. Remember, these were all memorized and recited. They weren't written down, typically. And it's a way to help you memorize the story, firstly. And secondly, when you repeat it in, in uh, Hebrew, uh, when you repeat a text, it's a way of emphasis. You know in, um, you know, in, the, in, in um, the liturgy at the Mass, when we say, holy, 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 Lord God of Sebaoth, or Lord God Almighty, uh, we say, holy, 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 not to be repetitive, but because in Hebrew there's no emphatic form. So when you say, holy, 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 you're saying holiest. Is that, so, by way of, by repeating, in a Hebrew, the, the Greeks don't do that, and English certainly doesn't do that, but Hebrews did, and that was they would repeat things as a way of emphasis, okay? So when you say, holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, right, you're saying, little God of hosts means God of everything, hosts of heaven. Holy, holy, holy is just an emphatic. He's the holiest, you might say in English. All right. So let's look at this. So when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, though that was near. If you look at, from Egypt to the Promised Land, it's a straight shot, but you got to go through the Philistine land. What's a Philistine? Are they good guys or bad guys? They're bad guys, and they get they get whooped pretty good later on down the road, but. God says, I'm not going to let them go through the land of the Philistines. Why is that? Because they, so they won't get freaked out and run away. Hmm? So they don't get killed. But also it says, lest the people change their mind when they see war and return to Egypt. Isn't that crazy? Now, God could have just wiped out the Philistines. Could have. Why doesn't he? I don't know. But what he does, we do know, because the Bible tells us, God says, you know what? If they are put in trouble, I don't want them to revert back to their old habits, right? Revert back to what they're used to. And if, they're, if, they're, if I give them too much too fast, they'll get spooked. Is that a good way to look at it? So we're going to go another way. Does that preach? <laughs> uh, you know, there's, the scripture says that God only gives you what you can handle with his strength. Uh, that's, this is right there, God being merciful, and rather than throwing the full kitchen sink at the Israelites, who are ready for battle, by the way, it says so, they're armed as they leave Egypt, um, he takes them another way. Um, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. Remember Joe? Joseph was the guy who got them to Egypt in the first place. Remember that? We talked about that. He was the one who went down to Egypt, and his, his brothers, well, actually, his brother's Took him to Egypt and sold him into slavery, and he was brought to Egypt against his will, Joseph. He got to Egypt, and remember that last year we wrapped up this with uh, his brothers had betrayed him, and at the very end of it, uh, at the end of Genesis, Joseph says, uh, You intended this for evil, but God intended it for good. And then if you remember way back in the end of Genesis, he said, I will, uh, or God promised him rather, Joseph, that he would lay, he would be buried in the land of his fathers. Okay? So when they're getting ready to take Joseph, getting ready to leave Egypt, they go and they grab his mummified remains. He was, he was embalmed, so he's mummified in some form. And they carry the bones, the, the word bones means probably like a sarcophagus or a box with his dead body in it, and they carry that with them to the promised land so that he can be laid there along with all the other Jews. It's an important little detail that the Jews take the treatment of a dead body seriously as do Christians for that matter, right? Why do we do that? Because the bodies are holy, right? They're made in God's image. Human, I mean, we're made in God's image and this stuff is temporary, <laughs> but it's also important. And secondly, um, one thing, I, this is kind of a sideline, but one thing I'll say is when we, when we have human remains, we treat them with respect and dignity, even when they're dead. Um, if anybody here ever wants to have a, a funeral here for you or somebody that you, you, know, you know and they want to take um, human remains, like ashes and sort of, I've seen people want to like keep some here and put some here and put some here, let me just give you something, another way to think about that <laughs> and that is uh, you would never take a body and cut it into parts and spread it to different places, right? Or hang onto a finger or, or a whatever. You would put all the remains in one spot whether they're in the ground or they're at, at sea or whoever they are uh, re- returned to the earth. They're usually done as a unit, right? As a casket or in cremated remains. So a lot of times people, because it just no one's ever taught them this, people will want to split their remains apart. Is it sinful? No, but it's not proper. You want to bury them all together. Does that make sense? Uh, I have said to people before, if you really want something, a a memento, or want something to be reminded of somebody, hang onto a piece of their clothing or cut some of their hair, you know, or something, if you want to do that. But don't hang on to ashes, it's just not, it's just they need to go back to the earth from whence they came, okay? Anyway, so um, the Lord went before them in a, by day in a pillar of cloud and led them along the way. What does God, he, God leads them out and what does he do? Is he, is he just kinda like gone or what does he do? He leads them and they can see him. This is an important detail. God, you know, a lot of times people think of God as just sorta like out there, you know? God, the God of the Bible anyway, is always giving uh, his presence with his people. For example, here, well, we'll see later, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ten Commandments, and so forth, right, being carried around. Here, this pillar of fire, this pillar of cloud, this is God going with his people in a, in a, in a I said tangible, because you can't touch smoke or fire, but in a way which they can see and is physically present with them. Does that make sense? Can anybody give me another example of how God today is, does that with us? physically present with us in a way how how is God how does God even if God is the the God of the Bible is always providing means by which God is tangibly present with his people in communion in the Eucharist right the consecrated bread and wine we believe as Anglicans that Christ Jesus Christ is spiritually which means really present in the bread and the wine once it's consecrated by a priest or a bishop Um, in the church you'll notice there is a, a something called a tabernacle or an ombre and it's a door, and it's where we keep the consecrated sacrament. And there's a red light hanging there. Do you ever see that red light in there? The red light is called the light of the presence. It symbolizes that Jesus Christ is present with his people. And people sometimes go, well, that's a little bit weird. You know, it's a little uh, uh, supernatural, not supernatural, but uh, superstitious, thank you. But the God of the Bible always is with his people in physical, real, tangible forms. Why? because we are real, physical, tangible beings. Is that, you're right, you with me? I mean, other, like Eastern religions, it's all about transcending the world and nonsense. The God of the Bible is earthy and is born in a barn and gives his people his body and blood upon which to be nourished and to be reminded that he's present with them. Incidentally, the reason that when you go into church and you bow at the altar, you're not actually bowing at the altar or if you genuflect, which is my custom, you're not actually doing it to the altar, you're doing it to the tabernacle, God's presence in that form. Most people don't know that either, but that's another matter. Any questions about that, or any comments, Um, anything? Do you think it's strange that God is present with his people? I don't think so, I mean, God is, the God of the Bible is extremely practical and pragmatic, and Christianity is as earthy as it gets, man. Um, So, okay, so the bones of Joseph, back in Genesis chapter 50, verse 25, God had promised Uh, sorry, Joseph made uh, them promise that they would take his bones like his father before him to the promised land, which they all do. And then God leads them along with his physical, real presence, which is not just a symbol, but somehow in some supernatural way, which I don't know exactly, but God is present with them, just like in the Eucharist. It's a mystery, but it's true. Okay, um, any questions about that? Father, you got anything for me? Nothing to add. Okay. Yes, we're going to get to that actually, because they go, they're going. They he, we know at least at this point, Janet. We, it's a good question. Janet said, "Do you think he's taking them the long way in order for them to build trust?" And the answer is yes, but that's not why he does it here yet. Later on, he does. But here, we know he does it because he's afraid if he throws too much at him too fast, they'll get spooked. And I think that's just really really cool of God to do that, <laughs> like that he, he, he knows our own weakness and our own shortcomings and our own failings and our own incredible lack of faith and trust in him, and that even though we've been delivered from the Egyptians and we've gotten, took all their stuff and all these plagues, you know, faith can be an awfully short-lived thing sometimes, as we all know, and in particular when we're f- scared or frightened, we tend to revert back to the things that, that we can control and make us comfortable, and God says, you know what, this is just too much for them right now, I'm going to take them the long way. Okay? All right. So, um, moving along. Um, Chapter 14, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Phi-Hirahoth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Bel-Zaphon. You shall camp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Now, this is actually to Janet's point. Um, why, why does God send, um, tell the people? So the people of Israel are going along, they're going the way, the long way, as it was, and then God says, stop. And if you look at a map, it says, tell them to turn back and encamp. They actually are going this direction. They stop and they turn around and go that direction. Now, Pharaoh has people following them. Scouts, right? Pharaoh's got the largest army on the planet at the time. They see an army going this way and then stopping and going this way. If you're a military leader, what's that going to make you think is going on with with the people you're trying to catch? They're They're what? They're losing their nerve, or at the very least, they are, uh, they're lost. <laughs> and, and so what God does here, actually, it's fascinating. He says it. Um, For Pharaoh will save the people of Israel, verse 3, they are wandering in the land. They're lost. They're, here we go again. Yeah, God really bailed them out this time. Told you they weren't going to make it very far. <laughs> they're wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he'll pursue them. Do you notice something interesting? God is still trying to prove a point, just because it's not like the the end, the goal of all of this is not just to get the people out of Egypt, because quite frankly, God could have just moved them if he had, you know, supernaturally. The point of all this is that God is trying to make a point, and the point is, I'm God and Pharaoh isn't. And to Janet's point, uh, about who uh, asked about trusting God, that he wants the people of Israel to see, even when I tell you to do really stupid, crazy things, trust me, I got this one. How do you learn to build trust in a person or in God? Experience, right? If someone says to you, I got this, you're like, this doesn't seem like a, the right decision. Hey, Jim, are you going the right way or going the wrong way? Trust me, I know what I'm doing. If I say, okay, fine, and then we get there, it build my trust in the person who's driving the car, for example. When God wants you to learn to trust Him, He does it by telling us something, or the Israelites something, which doesn't seem obvious or clear, but then post facto, when it's all said and done, we can look back and say, oh, wow, He was right after all. That's how you build trust, whether you're building trust in a person or in God, for that matter. Okay? So the point of the story is not just getting people out of Egypt, let my people go, Yeah, that's part of it. The bigger story is trying to have God's people learn that he's trustworthy and that he keeps his word. Any comments on that? Um, I have here, it seemed that God was mistaken, but it was a trick. Sometimes God places things in our lives we don't expect, but is still using them for our good. So this, all, this whole thing, as we see the, the, the big picture here, is God is actually setting a trap for Pharaoh. And I wonder sometimes, you know, um, anybody think that the, our culture is kind of in a big mess right now? <laughs> Just saying, you know, it's been a kind of a tumultuous past couple of weeks. Uh, our culture continues to become more and more divided. Uh, we, it's more and more antagonistic. And people say, oh, where's God, where's God? You know what? Just calm down <laughs> and realize that God uses these things for His own glory. And it might not be comfortable, and it's not comfortable, and it's certainly not clear, but God's in control. And all we have to do is remember we can just lean on Him. And, you know, no matter what happens with the political issues of the day, no matter what side of the fence you're on, but political party, I would just say to you this that just bear in mind something that God works this all out to His glory. Okay? And, uh, I think we can sometimes get spun up in the issues of the day rather than remembering that God, uh, it might seem like like the end is near and the jig is up and that God has forgotten us, but he hasn't. Just be patient. Any comments on that? Paul, you got anything? and perspectives don't make things right, and the tragedy is about that. If the person is feeling something and they're wrong based upon what we know is true through Scripture, as Christians, we believe that to be true, then they're 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 doomed to, they're doomed to fail, which is really the tragedy in all this. So I'm going to move along. We're, we're running low on time here, but um, I want you to know one quick thing. I'll get you in a second, Paul. I want you to know one quick thing too about uh, this whole thing, this whole situation. Pharaoh has just had his his uh, his. his defeat handed him on a plate, right? The Egyptians got out, and now all of a sudden he's changing his mind. Well, God hardened his heart. But also, one thing which is interesting about ancient Near Eastern religions is the gods were capricious. They changed their minds, right? You ever read any of the Greek Greek stories of the Greek gods? It's like a big dysfunctional family, right? They're all (laughs) fighting and arguing and complaining. So Pharaoh's thinking, well, maybe God has changed, maybe, Maybe the God of the Israelites, maybe he's lost, maybe he's changed his mind, maybe he's lost his nerve, maybe I, can, maybe I can beat him after all. And when he sees the Israelites turn and go back, he thinks, well, God's abandoned them. But see, the God of the Bible is altogether different than gods of the ancient Near East, or even gods today. So, Paul, you had a comment? Well, yeah, there's a two-another purpose in this, that once the Egyptians are wiped out, now they can never go back after Israel again. That's right. from one more, and he kills all the Egyptians can go back after them. And that leads them to when they get to the promised land to fight the That's right. So, they, so that's right. So God removes the Egyptians who are the Israelites enemies from them. You know, in their he fights for them and defeats their enemies so they can defeat the Canaanites which they also defeat by the hand of God, by the way. If you, it's never done by, the Bible is clear that all the battles that are fought, whether it's the Egyptians or the Canaanites or whomever, um, Jericho, all these different places that are are conquered, are conquered not by the might of the Israeli, Israelite army by itself, but by God working through them. Okay, so let's move on. So, uh, where are we here? We are at, uh, when the king of Egypt, verse five, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, The mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done? We have let Israel go from serving us, seizing an opportunity. So he, Pharaoh, made ready his chariot and took his army with him. And he took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers all over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them. All Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army overtook them and camped by the sea at Fi He Hiroth in front of Be- uh, Baal Zephon. So again, we're seeing the same story again, right? Pharaoh thinks, Aha, I've got him. And God said, And the Israelites, of course, are thinking, Oh, here they come, right? And chariots move a lot faster than a bunch of people on foot. <laughs> so once the chariots are on their way, Pharaoh thinks he is in control. The people of Israel are beginning to wonder if Pharaoh is in control. And God is saying, watch this. Okay? Um, this, is, I this here is a key verse. Verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly now you would think that after all of this they would see the chariots coming and they would say what ah oh, god's i mean you have a pillar of cloud at, during the day and a pillar of fire at night that's god going in front of you he's just delivered you out of egypt he's just you got all the egyptian stuff did you guys talk about that last week father were you guys the the israelites basically cleaned out the egyptians before they left they've got all these signs that have shown them that God is faithful and just and with them and they see the and then they behold the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly it's like you know if i was god like come on you know how many times do i have to show you over and over again i'm going to bail you out and yet they still fear greatly and but but well, new. what's new right? right you're the same way, yeah, we're the same way. right <laughs> right Stiff-necked, well that's right, and this is, the, this is the whole point of the story. We are not, this is not just a historical story, it is historical, but it's also you and me and every other human being you know who, uh, who is part of God's people. We are, and God, the, the cool thing about it though is that God knows that and he accommodates them. Let me show you what happens here. Um, look at, this is actually, they're beginning to get it though, because if you look here, it says, at least they're begin, beginning to get it initially, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord." Wow! That's kind of, so they're beginning, you know, they see the chariots coming after them and they say, you know, maybe, uh, I got an idea. Let's cry out to God and ask him to help us. So at least they've gotten that, okay? But then, look at the next verse, they said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? I mean, it's humorous. It's funny, right? Moses, what have you done? We told you we never wanted to leave Egypt. What are you doing bringing us out here? Poor Moses, man. <laughs> being, a, being a shepherd of God's people has never been an easy job. Um, for, this, is a, this is the best one. For, what would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Uh, There is a repeated theme in in scripture, another one, you'll see this over and over again, of God's people when things get squirrely, going, you know, remember the good old days? In fact, remember when they were in Egypt, and they say, oh, wish we were back where we were before we had the leaks, or when they say later on, when they're complaining about all the struggles when they're in the desert wandering, they say, Remember, we were back in Egypt, and we had leeks and melons, and you never had that kind of stuff when you were there, but it's all, it's all kind of a, what do you call that, wishful thinking? We, we, we glamorize the past, and we remember the things in the past, go, boy, if it was only like the good old days. Well, guess what? Oftentimes, the good old days really weren't all that good. You're just it's, uh, you're selectively remembering things. And they, they begin to blame Moses. Moses, what have you done to us? You, Moses, it's your fault. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians and to die in the wilderness. Well, you didn't serve the Egyptians, you were their slaves. Um, But Moses, you know, to his credit, and here's actually what makes Moses Moses and why he's the leader of the people, is not because he's not scared, but because he reminds them of something. I've, I've said this to you guys before, a lot of my job as your priest, any shepherd's job, is not so much to teach people what they don't know, but to encourage them what they do know. A lot of my job is not to teach you things you don't know, but to remind you of things you already do. That's precisely what Moses does. Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You, only, you have only to be silent. Put a sock in it. Right? Yes. Yes. God is speaking to them through these signs. Yes. But the, the Israelites also have to trust in Moses and Aaron um, through whom God is speaking to them. That's right. They don't know who they are. Or Moses, it's really. I mean they they've they been with him some, but they don't know to trust him. That's a good point. That's that's a very good point. They have the, the people have to learn to trust him too. A couple of things going on here. The people have to learn to trust God. Moses has been given the responsibility of being the prophet, essentially, because there's no scripture to appeal to, right, yet. Uh, so, so the Word of God is not uh, this, which back then, the Word of God wouldn't have been this because it didn't exist yet. The Word of God was what God spoke through prophets, okay? So they have to trust Moses, and they have to trust that he is telling them the truth, and the only way you know that is by Moses, like before, him giving the plagues and God saying, and people going, wow, that really happened, right? That's how they begin to trust him, Moses. But then also, they have to learn to trust Moses, but they've also got to learn, Moses has to remember, remember to be faithful. That's the key. If you have a person in a position of leadership in a church who's not faithful, I don't mean not a sinner, because we all are. I mean somebody who's not clear on how to, what scripture says and how to explain it and is not afraid to do that, if you don't have somebody in the role doing that, you're sunk. I hate to be that blunt, but it's true. You look at all these churches that are failing. I can, well, I'm going to say it. You look at churches that are failing oftentimes, you look, you look up to the top and you'll find somebody who doesn't preach the gospel. I'll be, that, I'll be that blunt. And if you find ones that are flourishing, you look up top, it's because the person in the box is preaching the gospel. Amen to that? It's true. It's just the truth. Paul? Yeah. So does he end up in the drink? No, Pharaoh does not end up in the drink. He sends... That's actually a really interesting point. Pharaoh is in his chariot, but he's got his chariot. He's got 600 of his elite troops with him in chariots, but also something like two or 3,000 chariots that are there chasing these, these Jews into the, into the water. And it's interesting because what you have is Pharaoh commanding his army... To go into the water after the Egyptian, after the Israelites, and God commanding his army to go into the water to escape them. So both God and Pharaoh are issuing the same order. Who's right? We're going to that in a second. Do you see my point? And secondly, well we'll get to that in a minute, but Pharaoh does not go into the drink, but his people do. Um, okay, so um, the Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. The Lord, verse 15, the Lord, um, the Lord, and let me, before we get into that, let me just say one quick thing that I was, was going through all my study. A lot of times when people are suffering and struggling, and particularly when they're scared, right, and I see this a lot, and it's not a criticism of anybody, because we all do it. When we're scared, when we're fearful, when we're unsure, it's very easy to blame God, right? They blame Moses here, right? I get blamed for things all the time when people are unstable. I do. It's just part of the gig. Um, but you all, people will also blame God. Why is God doing this to me? And you've all said that, and I've done it, I've done it too. Don't beat yourself up too much over that if you do it. Remember, it's not God doing it to you. Intellectually, you might not feel that in your heart, excuse me, but, uh, just remind yourself of that. Or if somebody you know is wrestling and blaming God for their problems, or someone they know has died or gotten sick or something, just remind them, honey, it's not the Lord doing this. Or, dude, it's not the Lord doing this. I know you feel that way. I know you're scared and angry, and I want to validate that. Fine. But this isn't God's work. This is evil. And God will fight for you. Just, that, just as a word of encouragement, because human nature hasn't changed. <laughs> and uh, they've, they blame God, and other people do too. Uh, the Lord said to Moses... Um, so Moses, of course, takes his complaint to God. And the Lord said to Moses... Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Come on, Moses, you're my guy. Get up get in the breach. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, not just Pharaoh, so that they shall go in after them and I will give, get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. Here's the key verse. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. See the point I was saying to you before? The point of this story is not just let my people go. The point of the story is God proving he's God. So um, let me say a couple things here about this text. Lift up your staff. Isn't it interesting, again, does God need Moses? Who's actually parting the waters here? Is it Moses? Moses? Who is it? God. Why does he need Moses at all? Why does Moses have to use a staff? Why do you think? We don't really know, but i have a, I have a theory. Well a the staff is a reference to a shepherd, I mean a staff is used throughout the Bible. A staff is used throughout the Bible. Moses is an old man, he probably uses a staff to walk. It's the same staff that he would have struck the Nile with, remember? Yeah. To bring out the whatever the frog, whatever it was. Yeah. But why do you think God uses physical? Yeah, what do you I think? think it's, uh, to provide Moses with evidence that um, he is to give God the glory for everything that he's doing, which he ends up not doing <laughs> in there again. That's right. That's right. It, this very, very, the, the very last thing um, when when um, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and Moses says. Um, do not be afraid, stand firm, because God is going to be with you. That's the first time Moses has been able to say, and he could have really messed up, but he didn't. He could have. That's right, Moses... Yeah, I've got this. Well, you know, and Moses is growing in faith, too. I mean, it's not like Moses is like, yeah, I got this locked in. He's, like, he's a sinner like everybody else. But he has seen, Moses has seen God working. And Moses is, the only thing going for Moses is that the guy trusts, is trustworthy. Tr- I mean, trusting of God. And willing to have his eyes open enough to see well, wow, this is really bigger than, than me. But back to the point, though, why does, again, why does God use Moses at all? What do you well, think? Because the people can see and identify right. with a human being right. doing that. And they could not see God. They, couldn't, they really weren't even listening to God right. because God was speaking to Moses. No right. one else. Right. right. And so... It would be difficult for the average person to believe that this thing that I can't see... Right. is actually speaking to me. Yeah, a, People, again, God, Christianity, the God of the Bible and Christianity is earthy. I say this all the time and I mean it. It's a religion of physicality, whether... You know, remember that our bodies we are resurrected at the end of time. We have bodies in heaven, right? Physical bodies that aren't like these are somehow different, but they're physical. God is a God of physicality, right? You have, the, you have the staff and Moses. You have Jesus himself, who is the son of God, who is a person. So my point being that I think a lot of times people wanna make religion and very spiritual, right? Very ethereal and ephemeral and nonsense. The God of the Bible is earthy. He uses sticks and old men <laughs> to do things for the purpose of showing, giving to, John, to Bill's point, giving people a physical thing that they can latch on to because we are physical beings. He's establishing Moses' leadership and he's actually teaching Moses, too. I mean, these guys are all learned. It's not just that the Israelites are learning. Moses is learning to trust God, too. Um, God knows that's the truth. So, um, uh, verse 19. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved. This is cool. So, up until now... The angel has, so here's the, here's the, uh, here's the army. That's not a very good army. How do you draw an army? I'll just, I I know what I'll do. I got an idea. I'll use a military, I'll use a military image. So here's the army, right? Here's your army. The Israelites, the Israelites are an army. It says when they went out, they were armed, right? Here's, here's the Israelites. And here is the water in front of them. Okay? Now remember, I've told you before, the Israelites were never seafaring people. They feared the oceans. Uh, if you look at, if you read the Old Testament, you hear about the Leviathan, right? Uh, in, this sounds funny to us, but to the I- Israelites, the oceans were where all the bad stuff lived. It's the place where the boogeyman is. It's evil, it's unpredictable, it's terrifying. So you stay out of the water, right? The Israelites never went into the oceans. Lakes, to fish, yes. Oceans, never. So now they're back against the wall. Here's, here's the, the uh, pillar of fire in front of them, which has led them. They're going this direction. What, what uh, Genesis tell, or, sorry, Exodus tells us is that the, the pillar moves over to here. Right? See what it says? It was verse 19. Yes. that the, the, the pillar moves behind uh, the angel of God who was going before, meaning in front of, the host the nation of Israel or the people of Israel moved and went behind them and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So now you have this pillar the pillar of fire by day and the pillar sorry the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night moves here. And why would it do that? Cuz the Egyptians are here. Right, they are coming what God is doing is he's he's actually Putting an army in between, putting himself, frankly, between danger and salvation, which should sound awfully familiar, right? Because Jesus Christ does the same thing in the New Testament. He stands in the breach between the things which can hurt us and our salvation, right? So God puts himself, if you will, in the position of vulnerability, you might say, but God stands in the breach. And and what he's doing is he's buying time. Remember, you know the... uh, What's, this, what's the um, Dunkirk? Remember the Dunkirk when they evacuated all the, all the British troops off of um, Dunkirk, right? And what they do? They had, they had um, units of the British army that stayed behind and fought a, uh, what's it called, the something action, where they, a rear guard, where you'd kind of delay the enemy so that the guys can get the boats and get the people off the beach. That's what God's doing. He's actually placed this column here to block the Egyptians from their pursuing of the uh, Israelites so that they can get off the beach. Um, And there was a cloud and the darkness, and it it lit up the night without one coming near near the other all night. Then Moses, so God goes behind the Israelites before he's led them, stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the, the sea dry land, and the waters were divided." Um, the people have speculated that it was some sort of like, it's this, it was a, the east wind is a dry wind, and, it, and in the ancient Near East, it was always um, symbolized bad stuff coming. Kind of like the dust, isn't there a wind in the, on the prairie that if it's coming a certain direction, you know it's gonna be bad? There's a, I've, I've never lived in the prairies, but my understanding is that's the case. This east wind comes, people have speculated that somehow maybe it was just a natural phenomenon that dried up the Reed Sea and they walked across it because it wasn't very deep. That's just not defensible by the text because um, uh, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea a dry land and the waters were divided. That word for divided in the Hebrew means a wall. So probably 20, 25 feet high. Yeah. So it could not have, even if it was a strong east wind, because again, God does use natural stuff to do things, but there's no way without divine assistance that could have occurred, according to, the, according to this. A lot of modern scholars will try to debunk this miracle by saying it was just a natural phenomenon. You can't, okay, fine, but you can't use this text to make that defense because that's not what this says. Is that clear, everybody? Am I being clear? Okay. So if anybody ever says, oh, that was just made up, it's this shallow part of the water, you can't can't defend that based upon the only evidence we have, which is this, and the wording, which is clear, that the the walls are too high to have been a natural occurrence. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry land. Could you imagine seeing this happen? Now, you're a nation of people that never touches the ocean. (laughs) It's where everything bad happens. It's split wide. You have people barreling at you. What do you do? Because now God's behind you. He's not leading you through. What do you have to do? You've got to trust him again. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. The waters being here, it is a wall. That's that word that means 30 feet high. To them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. So the Israelites, are doing, the Israelites are making it across. God's blocking the Egyptians. They shoot across. The, they go this way through the, uh, the waters. And then finally the Egyptians, God, I don't know, at some point in there, God takes this down and they chase them, right? The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen. Verse 24, and in the morning watch... The, uh, the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into panic, clogging their chariot wheels so they drove heavily. Um, there's several things going on here. This is not just them getting stuck in the mud. God actually puts panic on the Egyptians. So it's a couple things going on. It's actually five, we're not going to go into all these, five different things that happen that cause the Egyptians to fail. But the two biggest ones are this Force them being thrown into fear, and then he clogs their chariot wheels. Any, I was reading about this. Any chariots were only good to be used on hard ground. Okay. Apparently, they got halfway through the water. It must have been hard enough to get that far. But then he confuses them. God confuses them, and he clogs their wheels. This is not just they ran into the mud because they got halfway across. And the Egyptians say, let us flee. Now they're scared before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. The Egyptians say that. So you see what's happened? Even the Egyptians now are beginning to trust God. They're beginning to see that he's the one who's in control. Do you see the point, though? God's purpose in all of this was to show he's the one that can be relied upon. And now everybody's beginning to see the point. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. The way this is done in the Hebrew, it's a very fast action. It's almost like Moses holds his hand up and just whoosh, comes back to normal. And as the Egyptians, um, as the Egyptians fled Uh, fled into it the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, but not not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground. Do you see that juxtaposition there? They get wiped out, but the people of Israel walk on dry ground. Through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. That's a repetition of the whole thing. So... um, Let's just wrap this up, and then we'll take a couple seconds just to wrap up the, uh, the reading for the day. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. Remember, the first thing I read you was, when your kids ask you about why you're a believer, why you believe in God, tell them this story. right? That's what I said to you at the beginning, chapter 13, verse 7, 13 it was. Um, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. That word there means it was like covered. Like that scene in uh, Saving Private Ryan at the end of the when that whole, at the beach scene where it's just covered with dead, dead bodies. That's what that means there. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. So, was God successful in what he was trying to accomplish? What was he trying to accomplish? He's trying to prove that Pharaoh, that the gods of this world are not gods, but that he is, and that he can be trusted. And that Moses, to your point, Moses, the leader, can be trusted. Any comments? Bill? I, I find it interesting when I was reading this about uh, God hardly Pharaoh's heart. And then uh, as you were speaking, I think it came to me a more uh, vividly when we think about him causing Pharaoh to make bad decisions because he had anger or he had hardened heart. In right. this whole situation, and you think of yourself making decisions when you have a hardened heart mm-hmm. about a subject or a person or anything else, and you do make a hardened decisions. So that's a good question. A hardened, a hardened heart is a heart that refuses to see things from a godly perspective. Right? A hardened heart is not somebody who says, I need more evidence or I'm not sure about this. That's not a hard heart. A hard heart is, I refuse. I'm not, I'm not, I refuse to submit. I am not, I'm not gonna take second fiddle. I'm my own man, I'm my own boss, and I don't care what you say, I'm doing it my way. That's a hard heart. And um, so, and we, and you know what, we I think every single one of us at some point in our lives was there. And we all know a lot of people who are there. Um, but God can get through that too. Paul? Well, Pharaoh has free will just like the rest of us. So how does God harden his heart? Did he send the devil to Maptor, or? Don't know. But, but the, the, the important, right, we talked about this the first, first session uh, about God hardening hearts and the whole plague thing. There's two things going on there. First of all, it does say on occasion Uh, We we looked at this a few weeks ago. It does say Pharaoh hardened his heart. And it also says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So it's not just like Pharaoh is some innocent bystander then God just zings him, that first thing. So Pharaoh is complicit in this hardening of his heart, his refusal to believe, right? Despite the facts, frankly. Uh, That's the important thing about having a hard heart is somebody who refuses to believe despite the facts, okay? Somebody's ringing. Second thing is... um, um, how does God do it? I don't know. It doesn't actually say. But Pharaoh has, a, has free will. He can make a decision to follow or not. And he, just, he decides not to. But the other thing too is remember the whole subtext of the story, the whole, it'll make a lot more sense if you remember the whole big meta-theme of this is that it is two supposed gods fighting. The god of the Egyptians and the god of the Israelites. Now remember, In the ancient Near East, you had gods that would fight all the time. They were polytheistic. There could be lots of different gods. You could be the Egyptian god, and the Philistine god, and the Canaanite god, and they all would vie for power, right? Here, the point is, when God hardens Pharaoh's heart, the the implication is that God controls Pharaoh. Pharaoh is not a god, because God controls even his heart. Make sense? That's the important part. I wouldn't get hung up on how does God harden Pharaoh's heart? I don't know. The important point of that is that God does it to prove that he's God and Pharaoh isn't? So, anything else? There is a documentary showing those chariots that were fossilized under the sea. Oh, yeah? I didn't know that. Go to that YouTube. Message. Oh, that's cool. There's, uh, I did not know that. There's a video of chariots under the sea. I did not know that. I did not. That's very interesting. Well, good. Well, thank you, friends. Next week uh, is. Um, The Ten Commandments. That's a good one. Maybe we'll start off with the old, remember uh, that bit from Mel Mel Brooks? Uh I bring you 15. (laughs) And he drops and it crashes and he goes, (laughs) 10. Ten Commandments. I love that. Anyhow, let's uh, let's pray before we go, shall we? Shall we pray? Uh, The Lord be with you. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for uh, your word, which, is, which encourages us, which uh, challenges us. We, uh, we thank you, Lord, for the characters in your stories, uh, just people like us who doubt and wonder and worry, but also uh, when they come to trust in you, they lead lives of imp- incredible strength and power. We thank you, Lord, for Moses and his leadership, for his wisdom, for his courage. Uh, we pray that you would give us the same. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. If you enjoyed our conversation, we ask that you like, subscribe, or share this message. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity Episcopal Church, visit us online at trinityvero.org and follow us on Facebook.